going to start in the Gospel of Luke today, and uh, we're going to start uh, ostensibly in the middle of the Gospel of Luke, although not exactly, but I'll explain uh, what I mean by that uh, here in a minute. Uh, when I turned 16 years old, I mean, my parents must have been crazy, but they gave me as a birthday gift uh, two tickets to the Gulfstream Pop Festival. Remember pop festivals back in the 60s? And, uh, and at 9 o'clock in the morning, my dad and I uh, showed up at the driver's license station, and I got my driver's license, picked up my date, and we headed up the highway. It was nutty uh, that they would trust me doing that. Of course, I was a little bit too naive to get in trouble at that point. Um, but I, I'll never forget the first band was this uh, little-known rock and roll band from the West Coast called Pacific Gas and Electric. And uh, if you've heard of them... Uh, I'll buy you a hamburger, uh, but I don't think anybody's ever heard of them. Uh, but they had a song that stuck in my brain uh, for several years and even sticks in my brain to this day uh, that had a, a Christian sensibility to it, and, and the song was called Are You Ready? And uh, the language had to do with the second coming of Jesus. Are you ready for Jesus to show up? Uh, and if you're ready, then he's going to take you home. That was the basic sentiment of the song. And it was a hard-driving rock song. And, uh, and I wouldn't become a Christian for five more years after that. Um, but, um, but still, it was, it was driving, and, it, and it, it made me think. And back, back in those days, you know, the, the thought of the coming of Jesus was a little bit more lively and at the front of everybody's brain. Uh, the first Christian book I ever read after becoming a Christian, was the late great planet Earth. So I was really geared up uh, waiting for uh, the second coming. Um, we are in a weird time of life. Uh, Carl Truman has entitled a book, Strange New World, and, uh, and I think he's on target with that. Uh, on the one hand, times have always been tough. Uh, Jesus said there will always be wars and rumors of wars. Uh, but on the other hand... Uh, for the church, we are heading into, I think, some uncharted waters. Uh, now, Truman and others would point out that we're heading into the waters in which uh, the first century church existed, uh, but nonetheless, something very different from what we're used to, and I think a good question would be, are we ready for that? Uh, there's political upheaval, there's international discord. A couple of things floated across my news feeds this week that, that rocked me a little bit. Um, the media loves to shock, and they do a good job of it. I'm quite nostalgic for the day when I would uh, get my newspaper off the front lawn first thing in the morning, read the news, and then not hear anything else about the news until the next morning when I got my, newspaper, my next newspaper. Uh, we are now in a 24-hour news cycle, and I remember the, the explosive unrest of the summer of 2020. Uh, and a friend of mine said, you know, we're, we have nothing to do but think about this all day long. And, uh, well, there's a lot of other things to do. You've got to go to work. But you have access to that, that stuff that will rattle you. Uh, so the question, again, is are you ready? Is the church ready? I think we can think about how to be a witness in the 21st century. Are we ready for that? Of course, here at Carriage Lane, there's the the more uh, poignant question, more pointed question of uh, getting ready for a new pastor. And I think that's got to be on the minds of everybody in the church. Uh, it's not simply a matter of uh, 
finding the pasture, but it's in some ways kind of getting ready. Uh, there's a sense in which there's a, a corporate consecration that takes place uh, as you head into a new era in the life of the church. And, and with that in mind, I think it would be a good idea for us to take a look at the Gospel of Luke, uh, especially what I'm calling the second half. Um, really, the better way to put it is part two uh, of the Gospel. The way that Luke has his gospel structured, and each one of the gospels are structured a little bit differently, uh, and, and that's to our benefit. Uh, but the way that it's structured is the first nine chapters of the gospel of Luke are all about the demonstration of who Jesus is. Uh, so the question is, who is Jesus? The, in the first two chapters, a lot of people seem to know. Uh, Zechariah is informed by the angel, so is Mary. Uh, Elizabeth seems to have caught on to it as well. The shepherds uh, have an angelic visitation. Uh, Simeon and Anna waiting in the temple seem to know who Jesus is uh, when he shows up to be dedicated. Uh, But from the initiation of Jesus' public ministry, uh, the question is in the air, who is this? Uh, So the emphasis in a literary way from the beginning of the Gospel of Luke or, you know, from the third chapter moving forward uh, is on his miraculous signs, his amazing public teaching, uh, not just healing, casting out demons, but even more uh, surprising and wilder uh, miracles of calming the storm and feeding thousands of people with one boy's lunch. Uh, but the question of who Jesus is is brewing, and, it, and I think it comes to a culmination in chapter 9. And, and by, by the end of chapter 9, Jesus has turned his face toward Jerusalem. And this is the way, again, Luke has it structured. And from this point on, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He knows why he's going. He's trying to inform his disciples why he's going and what that has to do with them. And how following him from this point on has to be marked by this move to Jerusalem. Uh, So that's why I think that this is a turning point uh, in the gospel. And I think that we will benefit from paying attention to what Jesus is doing uh, as he literally disciples uh, the people that are with him on their way to Jerusalem. So again, the question of who Jesus is, uh, is stirring up uh, in 825, chapter 8, verse 25, after the storm, uh, you you can really underscore this in your Bible, the disciples look at each other and they say, who is this? Who is this who that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. Uh, they might, ha- might have had some categories in their brains for who Jesus was, but that took them by surprise. That was beyond anything they could have imagined or expected. Uh, so at the beginning of chapter 9 and verse 9, Herod, uh, who's the governor of the, of the region, uh, or the king, uh, he poses the question, who is this about whom I hear such things. Uh, And then Jesus, in in the passage that we're going to read this morning, uh, puts the question to his disciples. First he wants to know what are other people saying, and then he wants to know what they think. Uh, So what you think about Jesus is everything in the first half of the Gospel of Luke. It's also, in in many ways, and rightly speaking, uh, the the first step in becoming a Christian. Uh, If you are on the periphery of the faith, or maybe even you've been a part of the church, but haven't really understood 
the coin hasn't dropped, is the way some people put it, in a way that captivates your heart, uh, the first question to ask is, who is Jesus? Uh, it is critical to understand um, who Jesus is, but it's also critical to understand that simply saying the words, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, or I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, is sometimes deficient. I remember being on a door-to-door evangelism trek through uh, a South Indian neighborhood, South Asian neighborhood uh, in London. I was over there helping out doing a summer missions trip, and, uh, and we knocked on the door, and this one woman, an- this young woman answered. She was younger than I, uh, but she was dressed in her traditional Sikh uh, clothing and had a British accent, and so you could tell she'd been raised uh, in Britain, been born there, and, and, I, and I put the question to her, do you, do you have any idea who Jesus is? And she says, well, he's the son of God, isn't he? Uh, and she was taught that uh, in her parochial school, and so she knew all of the lingo. She was far from being a Christian. Uh, she would not have wanted to own that at all, but she was able to say, this is who Jesus is. So it's important to understand that merely acknowledging Jesus as the Christ doesn't mean you have a real understanding. You don't have a life-changing or life-defining understanding of Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at here. And we're going to look at how that unfolds in these chapters of Luke. So the second, chapter, the second section of Luke is the journey to Jerusalem. Again, that's the way Luke has structured his gospel. Uh, the ministry in the main, not entirely, it's not a, a perfect one-to-one, but in the main, the ministry is moving away from demonstrations of power, signs and wonders, uh, to more instruction. Uh, again, literally to discipleship. Jesus is getting the disciples ready for what lies ahead, not only in Jerusalem, but also beyond that. And, and what we're going to see, and this really is a highlight, if you wanted to go back and study Luke 9 on your own uh, today, and we're going to spend a couple of weeks in Luke 9, uh, what we're going to see is that the disciples are woefully unprepared. One of the commentators, my favorite commentary on the Gospel of Luke, uh, he says that they are in a deplorable state of readiness. They are absolutely and categorically not ready for what's about to happen to them. They are not ready to understand what it is that Jesus is about and what he has in mind for them. And, and I think it's not too far a stretch to say that it might also be the case that the church in the United States and in the Western world right now is not ready and might even go all the way to being in a deplorable state of readiness for what's about to hit us, for what is currently hitting us. I know that we're we feel the impact of that, the power of that, uh, during June every year. It builds a little bit more. Of course, this year there's more pushback than I've seen in the past. Uh, but it's an explosive month for us uh, as we try to settle in and say, Lord, what do you have in store? How do you want us to be? Uh, what do we have to learn? Uh, I think that what Jesus is teaching the disciples is very apropos uh, to that. Um, So, with that, let me read this passage. I'm going to read uh, verse 18 through uh, 22, and then I'm going to skip down uh, and read verses 37 to 45, and you'll see why. Um, Here's the Gospel of Luke. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? 
And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Okay, skipping down, uh, after those, there's two big sections that we will get back to, but going down to verse 37, on the next day, this is the, the, they've descended from the mountain of transfiguration. When they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met them, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So, uh, I love the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I love the way it's structured. I've been in it a long time. I've preached it uh, more than a couple of times. And, uh, and I love the way it's handled and... Uh, and I hope that, that you catch some of that affection that I have and appreciation for the gospel. Uh, you know, the big question, and I think it's, a, it's, it's interesting to note, uh, that Peter was among the group back in, chap- in chapter 8, verse 25, who said, who is this man? Uh, how did he get from that point of being baffled to this strong assertion? And I think Peter really is speaking for the disciples uh, as their spokesperson. How did they get from being baffled in chapter 8 to uh, this place where it is asserted that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, the Christ of God. And it's interesting the way that Luke structures it. Uh, The text does not indicate that that it was a miracle that flipped the switch for them. Now, you know, the miracles are a big deal, and the miracles are intended to flip switches. Uh, In John, I think it's chapter 10, Jesus says, uh, you know, if you can't believe the things that I'm saying, at least believe the miracles. Uh, You know, so the miracles were given to Jesus to perform as demonstrations of power by which people could understand that what he was saying and what he was doing was from God. Uh, But it doesn't seem to be the case here uh, that Peter and the others are able to make this profession. You know, I almost said come to faith, and maybe that is what's happening. Uh, We're not sure. There's a lot of up and down along the way. Uh, But that didn't happen as a result of some miracle. Uh, There was a healing in the last chapter. There was a resuscitation. The little girl was brought back from the dead. Even the feeding of thousands uh, earlier in this chapter. And and again, the way Luke has written it, it doesn't seem that those gave birth to faith. 
But what it does say is that Jesus was praying alone. Now it happened that as he was praying alone and the disciples were with him, and then he poses these questions to them. Uh, You always want to note when Jesus is praying because something big is about to happen. Uh, Jesus prayed at his baptism. He prayed before he chose the 12. He prays here and he's going to pray once more uh, in this chapter and we'll notice that in a couple of weeks. Uh, And that, frankly, is the only way to explain uh, how Peter and the others can come so far in their understanding and recognition of Jesus. And all I want to say about that is that if you're wondering who Jesus is, or if you're seeking to understand him better than you currently do, uh, there's no better way to do that than to pray. Uh, And it's kind of a crazy, mixed-up thing. I've seen it happen to people many times. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God. Say, fine, well, will you at least ask him that if he exists, that he would reveal himself to you, and people will consent to that. And so it's very interesting how faith begins to kind of erupt or leak out, at least, uh, before there is actually a profession and a bending of the knee. Uh, But then Jesus puts the question to them, and this is the question that everybody's got to answer. If you don't answer it now, you'll answer it on the day of judgment. Who is Jesus? And, uh, and the disciples report back that, uh, everybody, that there are a lot of ideas in the air. And, of course, in our culture and the world in which we live, there are a lot of ideas in the air about who Jesus is. He's often transformed into a, you know, kind of a pop culture figure. Uh, C.S. Lewis was famous for one of the essays that he wrote where he uh, uh, proposed the, 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 the common thinking of the time that Jesus was either, what was it, liar, lunatic, legend, or lord. Uh, that he either had to be lying, and that's what a lot of the modern theologians uh, can kind of assert, Uh, or maybe it's just legendary. It's out there kind of with, uh, you know, the Hindu gods and stuff like that. Um, Or he was crazy, I think the way uh, Lewis described it on the level of a poached egg, uh, to be saying the things that he said, or he, he really is the Lord. But there are popular ideas And, of course, one of the great questions to ask friends and relatives who aren't Christians is, what do you think of Jesus? Now, usually people will have very positive ideas about Jesus. They don't usually call him a liar. Uh, But it's the starting point of the question. Uh, But Peter's answer is loaded, and it's so loaded uh, that Jesus wants them to keep it quiet. Uh, He answers that uh, we think that you're the Messiah, Uh, I think that the Matthew or the Mark version says, we think that you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Uh, At that time, no no one was expecting or could handle a Messiah that would be brutally killed. Uh, Peter's confession, again, is likely the turning point of the gospel, uh, even though the setting out doesn't take place for several verses down in the chapter. Uh, But this first phase of the ministry, it seems to me, is wrapping up. We've gotten to the point where the disciples are saying, we understand that you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, okay, now phase two, uh, we've got to get to Jerusalem. And I've got to teach you guys, I've got to disciple you in preparation for the events that are going to take place there. And that gets me to these two pronouncements that I really want to focus on this morning. Um, The one is in verse 22. 
The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Uh, The second pronouncement is similar to that uh, in verse 44. But let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. In each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus repeats his foretelling of what is in store for him in Jerusalem three times. Uh, Luke picks up the third one in chapter 18. Um, Everything from this point in Luke grows from this. Jesus is headed to the cross. And the key word, if you want to circle it, uh, is the word must in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. Uh, That's a word that occurs uh, in Greek, I think six or seven times in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, And each time, um, it is an indication of divine necessity. It's something that has to happen. So a strict translation of the word would be, it is necessary. That's the way you would translate. It is necessary uh, that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. So again, why the necessity? I know a lot of you could answer this question, but I'm going to take a step back uh, and answer it anyway. Um, Now, again, understand that that Jesus has told the disciples, don't tell anyone about this. Just just because you have the word Messiah and are attaching it to me uh, doesn't mean that you understand what it is uh, that God intends uh, for the Messiah. Again, they, they might have categories of Uh, a political or a military chaplain. They might have all kinds of confused ideas running around. But but what happens in in this chapter and and in the successive chapters, you see very clearly the disciples simply could not hold together the integration of God's majesty and the ignominy of the cross. They could not put both of those things in their brain at the same time. That Jesus is both exalted and doomed to dishonor. And that both of those things are completely true. And they both harmonize in God's purposes. They couldn't get that. Jesus tells them what they couldn't understand, that the Messiah must suffer, be rejected, and killed. Now the first time that occurs in the context of posing this question, who do you think that I am? In the second instance, further down in the chapter... It's in the context of them marveling. While they're all marveling, while they're all astonished at the majesty of God, and again, you can imagine what this is like. Uh, They've seen this great miracle. They've seen this great demonstration of power. Uh, Matthew and Mark tell the story with a little bit more color, with a few more details. Uh, But but, uh, Luke still gives the same punch, the same power of it. This kid is in a very bad way. And Jesus heals him with a word. And they are astonished at the majesty of God, verse 43, and they are marveling. And in the middle of that, Jesus turns to them and says, let this sink into your ears. We would say, let these words sink into your brain, sink into your sensibilities. He's trying to penetrate their, I don't know, their joy, their enthusiasm, their excitement, Of everything that's happening, he says, let this sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. 
the grid through which to understand these wonderful miracles from this point on in the Gospel of Luke is Jesus' determined face toward Jerusalem. And, and again, you take the step back and say, why the compulsion? He says he has to, it is necessary, it is of divine necessity that he suffer many things, be rejected and killed. Why? Well, on a mundane level, you know, what the secular scholars will say is that, uh, you know, Jesus just represented a threat uh, to the Roman authorities. Uh, he offended them, he threatened them, and he was executed as an, uh, as an insurgent. Or you could be uh, very matter-of-fact about it and say, well, the reason this uh, had to happen is that there was a traitor in the midst, uh, and he was going to betray Jesus um, one way or the other. Um, uh, but there's all this counter-information. Jesus says on a couple of occasions that he would lay down his life willingly of his own accord, that this is something that he was heading to, uh, knowing that he was heading to it, and he was willing to do it. And at this point, you, need, you know, we look a little bit more deeply below the surface. Not, it's not just at the physical or human level that these events take place. Peter, when he was preaching uh, on the day of Pentecost after the resurrection, uh, talked about the death and resurrection of Jesus and said that it was God's plan that this would happen, that this is what God wanted to have happen. And again, you scratch your head and say, well, you know, what kind of plan was that? Why? That still has the question, why is it necessary? Uh, Jesus had said at one point that he had come to give his life as a ransom for many. And, uh, and there's this interesting little um, event in John chapter 12 where some Greeks show up uh, and they say to a, a couple of the disciples, we, we really want to see Jesus. Uh, sir, we, sirs, we would like to see Jesus. And, and when Philip and Andrew go to Jesus and say, the Greeks are here to see you, that, that does something, and at least the way it reads. And Jesus says, well, should I now back away from this hour? Actually, this is the hour for which I have come. That Jesus understands that is some kind of signal. I don't understand it completely myself. Um, but he says, my soul is troubled the hour is right in front of me, and this hour is the reason uh, that I had come. Uh, one of the sections of the Bible that I think is most riveting and worth your contemplation uh, at another time is to read in any of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, about Jesus' prayer uh, in the, in the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, it is fascinating. It is something that you, we can barely grasp. We can't take it in. Uh, there's intra-Trinitarian communication, God conversing with God. They're not arguing with each other. They're not in opposition to one another. One is not trying to get the other to do something he's not willing to do. It is not, you know, this good sympathetic Jesus trying to dissuade an angry distant father. It is not that. Uh, but boy, is it grueling. It is grueling, sweat, sweating drops of blood. And, and again, mystery pervades the understanding of what's going on there. Um, he asks the father if it's possible for him to forego the cup. And, and, and in fact, the answer is it's not possible. Now, what's interesting about this, and again, this is to understand the depth of the mystery, 
is that Jesus had taught that with God, anything is possible. But here's something that is not possible. It is not possible for him uh, to forgo the cup. He must drink the cup. And so again, that takes us even deeper into the heart and purposes of God. Uh, And we find that this plan was moving from the very beginning of creation. From the very beginning of the Bible, God had in mind to save a vast number of humanity and to welcome them into fellowship with himself. And God's love compelled him. This is the way Paul describes it in the first chapter of Ephesians. God's love compelled him to enact a salvation, but Paul reminds us that he's going to do it rightly. He's going to do it righteously. His love compels him to forgive, but to forgive righteously. And that's hard for us to understand because we're so much not like God. One theologian said, um, forgiveness to man is the plainest of duties, but forgiveness to God is the most profound uh, of difficulties. Uh, It is hard for God to forgive. You need to understand that uh, in, in a very clear way. We're commanded to forgive one another on the basis of the fact that we've been forgiven, right? That's the way it flows. We have been forgiven and therefore we forgive. We remember the parable of the unmerciful servant. He was unwilling to forgive when he had been forgiven, and, uh, and, and that was bad for him. Uh, we're commanded to forgive personal slights as private people, and an unwillingness to forgive betrays a deep contradiction uh, in the heart of a Christian. If you're unwilling to forgive, there, you know, and very simply put, you might not understand the gospel at all. But God is not one who has been forgiven. He needs no forgiveness. He's not a private person. He's the creator of the universe and the creator of the law, both of which were very good until ruined uh, by the willful rebellion of humanity. And so I mentioned this in Sunday school a couple of weeks ago. I still think it's worth putting out in front of us on a regular basis. But when, when Moses and God are interacting in the wilderness... At one point, Moses gets so bold as to say to the Lord, uh, please show me your glory. And, and the Lord says, well, I'm going to stick you in the cleft of a rock, and I'm going to let my glory pass in front of you, but you can't see my face because no one can see my face and live. You might remember this episode, but um, when the glory of the Lord passes in front of Moses, uh, there is this self-disclosure that takes place where the name of God, Yahweh, is expanded. And, and this is what happens. The Lord descended in a cloud, I'm reading from Exodus, and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Do you feel the tension in that? Uh, Maybe it's too familiar. Maybe you're too used to it. Uh, But there is a powerful tension in the proclamation of the Lord's name. Because he says, 
that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children of the third and fourth generation. How is God going to forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, and at the same time not clear the guilty? Uh, Well, the disciples don't get it. They're not ready for this. In fact, their failure to understand is expressed with a fourfold repetition in verse 45. They didn't understand the saying. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. You know, and, and I think we can take a step back and say, how could they be so dumb? It's, it's okay to be a little offended by this. You, know, you guys have seen all these miracles. Haven't you thought to yourself, if I had seen those miracles, I would have been the most faithful disciple? Have you ever thought about that? I remember, you know, when I was struggling to become a Christian, thinking, oh, if only I could see one of those miracles. If I saw one of those, I would, I'd, I'd be steadfast, I promise. I remember reading Philip Yancey in a book that he wrote, and he said, here's what you need to have sink into your head, that of an entire generation that saw all of the plagues, saw the pillar of fire, and that walked through the Red Sea, only two of them made it to the promised land. All the rest of them disbelieved. They did not believe. So we can be a little offended with the disciples, but then let's very quickly uh, ask the question ourselves, why is it so hard for us to understand this? Why, Why can we not have it sink into our ears that Jesus was crucified? I mean, we know the story, and hopefully we have adequate professions of faith to connect us to the story. Uh, But in our ordinary life, we often betray the story. And everything hangs on this, or I'll at least say quite a bit hangs on this. The Apostle Paul called it the foolish of God in contrast to the wisdom of men. He says God chooses what is foolish, weak, low, and despised. Do we? We are impressed with the big and the powerful. God is not. We are impressed with what's beautiful and attractive, and God is not. We are impressed with intelligence and wit, God is not. We're attracted to success and to wealth, and God is not. We're attracted to the efficient and functional, God is not. We are impressed with performance and image. God is not. We are lured by comfort and safety. God is not. We are taken with prowess and accomplishment. And God is not. We are often impressed with ourselves. And God is not. Not only is God not impressed or taken or drawn to the strong and the powerful, In one of the most amazing verses in the Bible, he laughs at them with derision. It's in Psalm 2. Go look it up later. He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
and the Lord holds them in derision. There is a different life orientation. There is a different societal orientation. There is a different church orientation because of Jesus' determination to get to the cross. Uh, We'll talk about this uh, as the weeks unfold, but there's a fascinating book written by a guy who's not a Christian uh, called Dominion, where he basically says that Jesus on the cross willingly uh, has defined the entire world uh, henceforth, and I'll I'll describe more of that uh, as we get into it. Um, But here, in our context, it's good news that Jesus does not let anyone else define who he is, but you and I will recognize and ought to be recognizing on a regular basis how offensive the cross is to us and how the unfolding of our salvation um, has to do with our becoming more and more resonant with what Jesus is doing and heading to the cross. Can we pray? Uh, Father in heaven, It is the hazard of your people, and always has been, as long as you've been calling people, uh, to become uh, comfortable uh, with your word, uh, to domesticate it uh, to our own ends, to begin to diminish you a little bit so that we can lift ourselves up, and, uh, and that gets the disciples in trouble time and time and time again. And so we want uh, to move forward uh, by understanding this um, energetic, passionate determination of Jesus to get to the cross and understand our uh, participation in that in a way that sets us free. So please come help us in Jesus' name. Amen.